Amen. Well, please remain standing um, and turn with me, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapters 1 and 2. You'll find those if you're using one of the church's Bibles on pages 553 and 54. We have uh, an extremely long passage this morning, so I'm just going to read it and then not comment. No, I'm kidding. Um, I decided to break it up. We're going to read a little bit at a time. So we're just going to start with the end of chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And then as I get to each section, we'll read, uh, I'll read that and then we'll meditate on it. So chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Beloved children of the living God, this is your Father's word to you. I, the preacher, have been king over Jerusalem, as king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let us ask that the Lord would bless our time in his word this morning. Most gracious God. You know well that our hearts are prone to wander, that our minds are slow to understand, that we are not by nature children of your word. And so we ask that you would be among us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would open and illumine our minds, and that you would give us ears to hear this, your most holy truth, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. I believe it was the preeminent philosopher, Toby Keith, whose song, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. It's a song of longing for a simpler time, a time before heartache. And whether or not you like country music, it's a feeling we have all felt. That feeling of wanting to unlearn or unknow something. Remembering and longing for that contentment you felt before you discovered or learned or were exposed to something. And perhaps it's why we try to protect our children from the world. We know that certain things, once they are known, can only bring sorrow and heartache and pain. And so we try to protect that innocence and that peace just for as long as we can. Now, of course, Toby Keith wasn't saying anything new. All he was doing was putting to song the old adage, ignorance is bliss. And that's really much the theme of our passage today. Solomon states it poetically in verse 18. He says, For in much 
wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. But that confession is wrapped up in a context. There's, there's more to the story uh, in our passage this morning than that simple reality that ignorance is bliss. And last week, as we began to look at this book of Ecclesiastes, we, we began by introducing the message around three quests that are common to all of us, to all of mankind. The quest for immortality, eternal life. The quest for doing something new, something novel, something innovative, something world-changing. And the quest for meaning, for significance, that, that we can't just exist, we have to have to validate our existence with some significance and meaning. And each of these desires are true of all of us in one way or another, and that's not bad. God has given us those desires. It's part of who he made us to be. The problem is how we pursue those. We try to accomplish immortality, significance, novelty, something new through our own labors. And when we do that, we think that the only place we can truly find meaning is in accomplishing all of that, and we despair when we don't accomplish it. Today, we get to hear the humble confessions of an older man when Solomon starts to tell us where his journey went off the rails. He honestly confesses his attempts to find immortality and a legacy and significance. And with equal honesty, he confesses just how badly he failed. And the hope, his hope, (laughs) is that we would learn from his mistakes. And so if I was to sum up this section in our sermon this morning, it would just be this. None of us should try to be God, but all of us could stand to be more like him. None of us should try to be God, to replace him, but all of us could stand to be more like him. We want to ask First, how each of us tries to replace God, how we try to become our own God, the center of our own universe. And then we want to ask where such pursuits lead. And then finally, we want to ask what it means to just let God be God. How do we try to replace him? Where does that lead? And how do we just let God be God? That's what we want to look at this morning. Now, Solomon's journey is well known. Uh, the young king was offered anything he wanted from God. Do you remember that? And he, a- he didn't ask for gold and silver, but he asked for wisdom so that he might wisely and justly rule over God's people. And that pleased God so much that he said not only would he give Solomon greater wisdom than all others, but they would also make him richer than all others. We know the story of of Solomon's wisdom. How when those two women came to him, each claiming to be the mother of that small child, how he was able to discern the true mother 
with surgical precision. We, we hear of how rulers from all these other countries would, would come to Jerusalem to ask questions and bask in the wisdom of Solomon. But there's a darker side to wisdom. The final verses of Ecclesiastes 1 help us to see a bit deeper into Solomon's inner thoughts. And he says that, that he sought to search out, verse 13, all that is done under heaven. He wanted to understand it all. He wanted to try to come as close to omniscience as possible. He wanted to press the bounds of his creatureliness and he wanted to taste what it's like to be divine. And then comes verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. You get the idea, don't you? He wanted to know all about the world so that he could change it. He thought that if he understood everything, he could control everything. He believed that knowledge was a tool to gain leverage, that it would give him God-like powers to change or alter his reality. Now, we all have this tendency to measure how useful something or how uh, true something is by how useful it is. And of course, how do we all define useful? (laughs) It's as producing the results that we want. I can't tell you how many times I have sat, not with anybody in this congregation, obviously, but with husbands and wives, parents and children, Wrestling with tension and relationship problems, struggles. Pastor, what should we do? We open up God's Word. We look at what God calls us to. Humility. Patience. Forgiveness. Long-suffering. And then come the words, I tried that and it didn't work. And by work, they always mean the same thing. It didn't change the other person. It didn't make my life easier, more comfortable. It didn't remove trials and hardships from my life. The unspoken belief is always the same. What's the use in honoring God if it doesn't make my life easier and more comfortable? And Solomon finally confesses that with much knowledge comes much vexation, much pain, trial, toil, despair, struggle. The more he studied, the better he understood how things ought to be. But it didn't make him God, able to change reality. It only made him more aware of the pains, the injustices, the struggles of this world. So that attempt... To become his own God through wisdom is then carried on in a pursuit of pleasure in chapter 2. And so let me read verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. 
I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." Having seen that wisdom and knowledge could not give him the comfort he desired, he turned his attention to pleasure. That's nothing new. Fill your life with laughter, entertainment, and pleasure. Distract yourself from suffering in the world. And if all else fails, there's always wine. Maybe if he was writing today, it would be Bud Light, But you get the point. It's the attempt to find happiness through changing your circumstances. It's even described as he's building his own reality, which is what he's exactly attempting to do. In verses 4 through 7, he says he made these great works. And look at what he made. A place to live filled with gardens, fruit trees, and a source of water to feed those trees. If that sounds familiar, it should. That's exactly how Genesis describes the Garden of Eden. It's as if Solomon is trying to make his own Garden of Eden. This is the ultimate in changing your circumstances, trying to create your own creation, your new reality. And we always think ours would be better than God's, that we know better than He. And the temptation is is to look at this confession of Solomon at the beginning of chapter 2 and think, he's worshiping pleasure. But that's not it, not ultimately. Because what drives such a pursuit? It's not the conv- is it not the conviction that you should not have to endure and put up with pain? That you deserve better? What's really being worshipped? Is it not self? When you avoid all pain and drown yourself in pleasure or alcohol, 
You're worshiping yourself. You're seeking to replace God and saying, I have decided what I should have to put up with and what I shouldn't. God, you're fired. I'm in charge. But did you notice verses 3 and 9? He says twice, but my wisdom remained with me. One of our officers recently told me that when he was in high school, he rebelled and he pursued pleasure. And then he gave you one of those little crooked smiles. And he said, but you know what? I could never enjoy it as much as my friends because I knew better. And my conscience haunted me at every step of the way. My wisdom never left me. That's what Solomon is saying here. In other words, you have to be a fool to think that hiding from reality actually changes reality. Because in the midst of all his pleasure, he knew deep down inside that he's really just playing the fool. So what is it that wisdom forced him to deal with? Well, that's what we find in verses 12 through 15. So let me read that. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, and that there is more gain as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same events happened to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. He's acknowledging that wisdom won't change his reality. It won't enable you to do something that hasn't already been done before. Worse yet, it won't actually protect you from reality. The wise, as well as the fools, get sick. They lose their jobs. They lose their homes to fires, suffer loss of family and friends and so on. We all equally live in a world and a reality filled with pains and sorrows that might be physical. Maybe you can't walk. Maybe you can't conceive. Maybe you have chronic pain. Maybe you have cancer. It could be a mental struggle, dealing with chronic depression, bipolar disorder, some sort of compulsive behavior, Things that you just can't seem to conquer no matter how hard you try. And there's all sorts of injustices. You don't get the job because your boss's nephew needs the job. Your boss lays into you because she's having a bad day. Or you're just simply born in a country with no running water, no medical care, and no basic economy in which to find a job and to support your family. Wisdom offers you no protection from such trials. It doesn't even stretch out your life. And that's what's going on in, in verse 15. 
We talked last week about how that word vanity is really uh, the word uh, that means breath or vapor. What Solomon's wrestling with is the shortness of life. What happens to the fool also happens to the wise. Wisdom cannot make your life longer than a breath. So what benefit is there from being wise? He says it's like having a light in the dark. Having a flashlight in the darkest of nights doesn't make obstacles disappear. It helps you to see what's there. When you have God's truth, you understand that injustices are, in fact, injustices. That things not only could be better, that things should be better. And it might just help you to keep from stumbling or stubbing your toe. Reality is always hard, but it might be better in the light. It's better to see troubles for what they truly are than to stumble blindly through them. That's the benefit of wisdom that we see in our passage. The first benefit that we see in this book, there will be more. And it helps us to remember that life is not a cosmic accident, that that we are just a bunch of atoms smashing about in the universe, that there is meaning, there is significance to our existence. I mentioned last week that Ecclesiastes is a journey. It's it's sort of um, Solomon's memoirs, and so he, he takes us on that journey with him, from frustration to resignation, actually to joy and comfort. And that means, early on in the book, we are still firmly entrenched in the frustration section. We won't always be here, but we are right now. Solomon is confessing those foolish attempts to find meaning apart from God. And that frustration becomes most tangible in verses 16 through 23. Listen to what he says. For the wise, for of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun." This also is vanity, so I turned about and gave my heart to despair over the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil, for what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. 
Look at the words he uses. I hated life. I gave my heart to despair. So what is it that was so crushing? He's reflecting on what's going to happen to to all that he has worked for when he dies. What will happen to the reality he created, the palaces, the, the gardens, the pools, when he no longer is around to drown his sorrows in those pleasures? First, there will be no lasting remembrance of him. Verse 16, he's going to be forgotten. But possibly worse for Solomon is the reality that the one who inherits his wealth might be a fool. Now this is a common struggle, especially for men. This is why the ironically named trust fund was invented because they don't trust their children not to squander their wealth that they have amassed over a lifetime. That's why heirs to fortunes have to go to trustees who have been hired by the deceased to buy things. Because the one who toiled to build the empire fears that it will fall into the hands of fools. And that's an idea, verse 23, that Solomon says keeps him awake at night. (laughs) I can't even rest at nighttime. I worry about this. He's embraced the idea that his labors are only worthwhile if they can be handed or entrusted into the hands of someone who is worthy of them. That the only reason to work hard is to bless yourself or someone who is equally worthy. That only a fool would give his life to something only to hand it over to a fool, someone unworthy. But that's exactly what happened. Do you remember who Solomon's son was? Rehoboam? All the older men told him to do one thing. He went and found all his young friends who told him to do something else. He didn't listen to wisdom. And in one reign, one generation, he lost 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Because of his foolish ambition, there was a civil war and he was left with only two tribes to rule over. A mere shadow of the kingdom that had been built by his grandfather David and father Solomon. Years before that ever happened, Solomon knew that it was a possibility and he gave himself over to despair. But what if God thought that way? What if God said he would never labor for something if it meant entrusting it to less than worthy individuals who might mess it up? Surely at creation he could have said, hand my garden over to them? I don't think so. But worse, what if Jesus had said, Why would I go to earth and accomplish salvation for that lot? They're such fools. 
And indeed, we are. We, we, we do such foolish things. We, we take the blessings of God and we grow complacent with them. We return to our sins like, like dogs to their vomit. We mistreat those who love us the most. We stubbornly dig in our heels and refuse to apologize and end up sacrificing relationships at the altars of our own pride. We give our devotion to those who abuse us. We try to silence our consciences and then we ask why our lives are such messes. So let me ask you, would you give your life to rescue a group that would respond in that way? But what does 1 Corinthians say? It says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It goes on, it says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. In our self-centered, me-first world, we hear God's plan and we think, You would let fools inherit your kingdom? What are you thinking? You're a fool. And yet such foolishness is our only hope. You see, eternal life is the fool's inheritance. Because God is kind and gracious. Because he doesn't believe that something is only worthwhile if he can keep it out of the hands of those who will act like fools. Because he's willing to share his home, his gardens, his riches with those who are not truly worthy. Because he finds value simply in blessing others. We're far from the end of Solomon's journey but he just can't seem to contain himself and he gives us a glimpse of the lesson he has learned through his foolish pursuits in the, in the last few verses, verses 24 through 26. He says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or have enjoyment? For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. In the last three verses of chapter 2, he says that he has learned to stop... a trying to assign meaning to his labors by how they will be enjoyed and remembered after he is dead, but to enjoy them while he's alive. And to do that, he has to first see that his work and his food and his drink all come from the hand of God. And we have to see the same thing. Because understanding this will give your work significance And it allows you to eat and drink 
and enjoy those because they come from the hand of God. Solomon's greatest problem was that in seeking to replace God and live for himself, he ended up robbing life of all meaning. And the only possible end was despair. In seeking to make his work meaningful, he made it meaningless. And his life followed suit, stripped of all significance. See, when you think yourself wise, you end up inheriting the wind. But when you admit you're a fool, you inherit heaven. (laughs) When you try to give yourself meaning and significance, it's like trying to cash a check at a bank with no assets. But when you find joy in seeing something as coming from the hand of God, you shine a light in the darkness and see things for what they really are. And it's then you're able to enjoy your labor and enjoy your food and enjoy your drink. The Lord offers us such an opportunity right now. He sets bread and wine before us to remind us of what we've heard today. First, they are visible signs of Jesus' body and blood given in death on the cross. They preach that foolish cross to us. They remind us that God blesses us with an inheritance of which we are not worthy. And that reality should free you up from worrying whether or not you will be, uh, all you do will be proved meaningful by producing some imagined goal long after you are dead. You can just work hard today because you work for God. You can stop and and eat bread and drink wine and enjoy them because they come from the hand of God. So pause. Stop your striving. Hold those blessings of God in your hand and find value in them because they are from the God who blesses the fool And enjoy God's promise that he loves you, that he blesses you, and that he gladly hands you an inheritance for which he labored. Amen. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift this morning. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, You amaze us. For what father longs to entrust his empire to unworthy heirs, to foolish children? But you have chosen to destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning. The word of the cross is foolishness to this world, but to us it is the power of salvation, and so we rejoice. Father, help us to see reality for what it is, to accept that it is not ours to change, nor is it wise to ignore it. Instead, teach us to enjoy what you have given us to do, what you have given us to eat and to drink, and to delight in the lives that please you. We pray this in the name of the true and worthy heir, the only wise God, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.